Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series and podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Sultan Shaheen, editor of newageislam.com, join us to discuss making Islam modern. Mr. Shaheen will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Sultan, Sultan Shaheen. Thank you very much indeed. I'm very grateful for you to have invited me to this forum. This is a forum on which some very distinguished people have participated before. So <clears throat> I have prepared some notes that I will read out to you in the beginning, and then we can discuss things later. The radical ideology, which is the subject today, is far more powerful and well entrenched today than it was on 9-11. So-called Islamic State may have lost territory, but radicals have gained new territory in Afghanistan and Africa. ISIS and Al-Qaeda continue to preach their venomous ideology and attract educated Muslim youth. One of their main targets now is Indian Muslims, whom they are trying to incite for jihad against their own government through their new propaganda organ called Voice of Hind. Many blame U.S. foreign policy mistakes post 9-11 as part of the reason behind their increased strength. But I don't buy that. There is a reason why. I was based in London as a journalist in the 1980s. I had a chance encounter with a radicalized Muslim youth in Nottingham in the winter of 1986-87. He was trying to convert the children of a friend <clears throat> to Ahle Hadithism, a Salafi sect supported by the then Saudi regime. According to him, Ali Hadiths were the only true Muslims. I asked him what he thought of other Muslims. He said, they are the first and foremost enemies of Islam, but they constitute 99% of the Muslim community. How will you deal with them? I asked him. Kill them was his unhesitating response. This set me thinking. After all, this was only a young student. Something is going on in my community of which I am not aware, I thought. I had never associated Islam with extremism and violence. I started investigating this phenomenon and discovered that already 60 to 70% of Muslim students in most UK universities had acquired an extremist medieval mindset under the influence of a charismatic Salafi Omar Bakr, Omar Bakri, who later became a spokesman for Osama bin Laden. This was early 1987. So I can't accept that what is happening today is merely because of post 9-11 mistakes. Islam has now become almost synonymous with terrorism. Does this bother Muslims? Some Muslims, yes, they are bothered, but not the traditional Muslim ulema. They may not say this publicly, but seem to agree with the radical narrative 1940s. Islam needs to conquer the whole world, not a part of it. According to radial, radical theologians, while Islam can allow non-Muslims to live and practice their religion, it cannot allow them to be in positions of power, much less to perpetrate atrocities against Muslims. It cannot allow them to dominate the Muslim powers as they are doing now. What is the secret of radical Islamism's success? Its strength lies in the fact that it is based on unquestionable early Islamic history and not just Islamic scriptures. The scriptures, many do not understand, but history, everyone can relate to. The scriptures may lend themselves to various interpretations. 
but established history remains the same. Wars against Kafiris, Mushrik, apostates. All these actually happened in the 7th century CE and Muslims were victorious at a time when they were very weak. Muslims destroyed the two reigning superpowers. The then world order was overturned. Within a century after its advent, Islam started ruling from Spain to borders of China. And atheists like India's first Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru called it a miracle. Now, radicals claim they have again defeated two superpowers. This is another miracle, they claim, and only establishes the power of their faith once again. They feel vastly empowered with the turn of events post 9-11. What, if anything, are the moderate Muslims doing to reverse this trend, to prevent further radicalization? As a global community, Muslims have encouraged their religious scholars, the ulema, to issue fatwas against terrorism. Practically every Muslim religious institution has issued such a fatwa. Some of these fatwas in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh have been signed by hundreds of thousands of clerics. They all passionately declare Islam a religion of peace and denounce terrorism. But these fatwas have not worked, and they will not work. They, there are very clear clear reasons why. Number one, these fatwas are mostly rhetorical statements and do not question the foundations of the radical narrative. The jihadi theology is a theology of consensus. It has evolved out of opinions of scores of revered ulema of all sects of Islam over the last 1400 years. It cannot be countered merely by rhetorical statements like Islam is a religion of peace. All that most fatwas do by way of refutation of terrorism is present a popular quotation from Quran 532 saying killing even one innocent person amounts to killing humanity and saving one person amounts to saving humanity. Number two, the jihadi narrative cannot be counted by a fatwa that itself seems to agree with the fundamentals on which that narrative is based. Let me give you a concrete example. As many as 126 reputed moderate ulema from around the world scores of them from the United States, wrote an open letter to the self-styled Khalifa Baghdadi denouncing his activities in August 2015. This 14,000 words fatwa was considered a big breakthrough, raising expectations. But 40,000 educated Muslim youth joined ISIS the same year from 86 countries around the world. Apparently, this well-publicized fatwa from eminent scholars of all sects of Islam representing the moderate voice of the global Muslim community had no impact. I had written a 2,000-word critique of this open letter, pointing out why it will fail. This is available on my website, but I will share with you some of the reasons I had cited. This open letter actually made the jihadi task easier by saying, I am quoting, everything in the Quran is the truth, and everything in authentic hadith is divinely inspired. It also said, Hadith is akin to revelation. Even though these so-called sayings of the Prophet were written down up to 300 years after his demise, how could this be revelation? This is precisely what jihadis also tell our youth. These 126 ulema also implied that the Quranic verse 2.256, there is no compulsion in religion, may well have been abrogated by later militant verses in the Quran. 
they clearly agree with the militant doctrine of abrogation according to which militant verses that came later in Medina abrogated the earlier Makkan verses of peace and tolerance. Just one militant verse, 9-5, alone is said to have abrogated 124 peaceful verses revealed in Makkah. Similarly, the moderate ulema statements are fixed in the Quran and Hadith and are unquestionably obligatory in Islamic law. Unquote. This, thus accepting the basic premise of the Baghdadi tribe about a Sharia that is mostly based on 7th century Bedouin Arab Moors and was first codified 120 years after the Prophet had passed away. Also, the renowned moderate ulema accept the supposed, I'm quoting, obligation to destroy and remove all manifestations of shirk, that is polygamy or idolatry. What right do Muslims today have to destroy idols worshipped by people of other religions? Even Bamiyan Buddhas had survived 1300 years of Muslim rule. And so have worshipped places of other religions across the Muslim world. This completely obliterates the difference between moderation and extremism. What more could terrorist ideologues need by way of support from mainstream and moderate Islam? The problem with the theologians is that they have read and teach the same traditional theology on which the jihadi narrative is based. So they cannot go beyond merely questioning its tactics, implementation, timing, etc. Now, in the remaining few minutes, I would like to share with you a few points of what I think should be the counter-narrative which will strike at the very root of the jihadi theology. This counter-narrative is consist consistent with Islamic teachings and can be made acceptable if presented to the masses of Muslims properly bypassing the theologians. Fortunately, we do have the technological means today to reach the masses of Muslims with a counter-narrative without having to approach mosques and madrasas run by traditional ulema. Some of these points are the following. Number one, Quran has been created by God. This should be our narrative. Quran has been created by God. It is a collection of verses that were revealed to Prophet Muhammad initially in Makkah. Why this is important to say is that uh, the madrasas teach that Quran is uncreated. That is, it is an aspect, aspect of God, which is like God. So we cannot discuss Quran at all. This is what is taught in the madrasas. But actually, Quran is a collection of verses that were revealed to Prophet Muhammad initially in Makkah. These Makkan verses teach us peace and harmony, good neighborliness, patience, tolerance, and pluralism. These are the foundational and constitutive verses of Quran. They constitute the fundamental message of Islam. Number two, Quran also contains many contextual verses. The wartime instructions, for instance. Such verses are no longer applicable to us Muslims today. Three, the doctrine of abrogation as defined by radical ideologues is a false doctrine. God cannot be giving orders only to abrogate them later. So the militant Medinan verses of war have not abrogated the earlier peaceful and pluralistic Makkan verses. God does not prescribe any punishment. This is number three. God does not prescribe any punishment for blasphemy and apostasy. Nor does he authorize any human to punish anyone for kufr or shirk. So if at all any such crime has been committed in the eyes of theologians, the punishment has to be left to God. Number five, 
we are now living in the world of modern nation states our international relations are guided by the charter of the united nations which has been signed by all muslim states so all talk of performing jihad at least once a year as imam ghazali had said should cease number 6 there is no scriptural sanction for the call of a global khilafat modern pluralistic states are very much in tune with the first islamic state evolved by prophet muhammad under his constitution called misaq e madina number 7 modern democracy is a fulfillment of the quranic exhortation of amrahum shura banu this is 42 verse 42 in surah 38 so muslim should try and strengthen democratic institutions number 8 islam is primarily a spiritual path to salvation one of the many according to quran 548 not a supremacist political ideology as quran came to confirm all previous faiths we can only accept and respect all other religions as paths to the same divinity the doctrine of al wala al bara that is loyalty and disavowal for the sake of god alone as propagated by radical elements is misconceived and impractical in the present highly complex and intricately interwoven global society i keep explaining these and similar points to my readers on my website hoping that common muslim will consider them and a consensus will gradually evolve thank you very much now if there are any questions i can take wonderful thank you so much uh we have the first question in from jeffrey norwitz uh salafi islam demands adherence to the medinan surahs and the rule of abrogation uh how can the muslim world deny the specific world words of muhammad and not be apostate i couldn't hear you properly perhaps my internet connection can you repeat that please of course uh, jeffrey novik noets that's norwitz uh salafi islam demands adherence to the medinan surahs and the rule of abrogation uh, how can the muslim world deny the specific words of muhammad and not be apostate I still couldn't pick up the question fully, but I think you are probably talking about Makkah and Medina versus the difference between them. Is that so? Yeah. See, uh, what happens is that the jihadi viewpoint and the traditional Islamic theology also is that since the Medina versus of war came later, so they have uh, abrogated the previous Makkah versus, and Makkah versus had come at a time when Muslims are very weak. They are very few in number. They were living in Mecca, and they were kind of besieged by them, and so on. So they say that these verses had come when we were weak. We didn't have a state of our own. We didn't have the power to fight, and so these new verses that came in Medina have abrogated the previous verses. However, this is a you know a, a very very false doctrine, and for moderate ulama, as I told you. to support this is just amounts to supporting the theology of of jihadis it is their theology it suits them how can one verse 95 contradict and abrogate 124 verses of quran which came earlier telling muslims about coexistence and plurality and 
you know, accepting other religions. Uh, like Raha Fiddin, for instance, is there is no compulsion in religion. It is one of the mainstays of moderate Islam. This is what how we present Islam as. And also this uh, is, is how we can live today in the modern world. We just cannot, you know, live in a world in which uh, religion is uh, out of compulsion. You can, you, you can convert people, compel them to, to convert to Islam or force them or, or something like that. And that is something impossible. So we Muslims have to come out and say all these things out aloud and repeatedly and reach our common masses, as I said, bypassing the theologians because they are never going to accept. As I gave you the example of these 126 ulema which, who are very renowned as moderate ulema, very well respected by governments around the world. And some of them, uh, scores of them actually are in the United States itself and Europe and other parts of the world. And they are saying, as I have explained to you, the same thing that the jihadi theology is saying, they are actually strengthening that theology instead of refuting it. Thank you. Arnold Cohen asks, does the law of the state nation in which Muslims reside take precedence over Islamic law? What is the relationship of Islamic law and the law of the nation in which Islam is practiced? Do the answers differ depending upon the particularly particular strain of Islam which is being observed? You see, Islamic law, as I said, was codified for the first time. The Sharia was codified 120 years after the Prophet's demise. And since then, it has been changing. It is different from country to country. Uh, even today, there are different Muslim countries have different laws. They, some of them practice only the uh, family laws and nothing else. Most of them actually only practice the family laws. And even there, there are differences. Pakistan, for instance, which claims to be an Islamic Republic has itself uh, changed and modified and reformed the Islamic law, even the family law. Even uh, things like triple talaq, for instance, which is uh, considered part of the Sharia law. Although it is not, it cannot be by any means. It's, there is no sanction for that in Quran and, and the actual scriptures. So there is no point in, in, in insisting on Sharia. And uh, it is absurd for Muslims living in Europe in United area as a Sharia control zone. Now, what kind of nonsense was that, you know? So these kind of things that Muslims keep saying and the jihadis have convinced some Muslims that it is our duty as Muslim to enforce Sharia on the world, that every society in the world should be following Sharia laws. And it is our duty to see to it that it is done. Now, this is all absurd, and we have to say this again and again, repeatedly, and uh, and from uh, and giving, you see, in a way which is consistent with Islamic scriptures. We should not be going beyond that. We, I mean, we can say these things by remaining within the Quran and Hadith perimeters. Thank you. Uh, Robert Slater asks, does Sufi Islam come closer to some of your positions? Not Sufi theology. 
Sufi, you see, there are two things in Sufi Islam. One is the behavior, the conduct of the Sufi masters. The way they treated uh, non-Muslims. Uh, in fact, many people converted to Islam because of their treatment in countries like uh, mine, for instance, where there was untouchability and things like that. And these Sufis invited everybody to come and sit down with them and dine with them on the same uh, table, etc. So their behavior and they they made khidmat khalq which is service of humanity, as the corner stone of Islam. Then they also went for what is now considered uh, as a derivative from Vedas, which is monism, not monotheism, but monism, that God is everywhere and God is in all of us and that we are all made of the same divine godly stuff. So we are all one. So this was the message uh, of the Sufis. Some of them, you know about that. They're, some of them were crucified for this. Uh, by the Muslims themselves, and so on. So this is uh, what the Sufi conduct is, the Sufi masters and how they behave. And that's how we have so much respect for Sufism also. But then there is also Sufi theology. There are Sufis who have uh, tried to reconcile the Sufi theology with the traditional Islamic theology. And they more or less say the same things. You see, in fact, you will find that all the schools of Islamic thought, including the Shia and, and all within the Sunni Islam, all of them, when it comes to the questions of Islam's relationship with non-Muslims, Islam supremacism, exclusivism, and xenophobia within Islam, they all come together. They all say more or less the same things. Maybe sometimes in some different uh, words and some different terminologies, but essentially the same thing. And Sufi theology is also no different. So when there was a Sufi, a big international Sufi conference in Delhi a few years ago, I had written a long piece, uh, uh, you know, requesting Sufi theologians to consider these issues and, and bring their theology in line with modernity and in line with what the conduct of Sufi masters themselves was, not with the traditional Islamic theology as they have done. Thank you so much. Um, so Yosef Tiles asks, uh, with much of the Quran speaking about punishment and torture of infidels, would, would it be feasible? My internet connection must be very bad. Uh, yes, we're having a little issue soon. <laughs> uh, better? Please speak slowly. Maybe I'm able to understand. <laughs> okay. Yosef Tiles asks, since much of the Quran speaks about punishment and torture of infidels, would it be possible to change the Quran with a more moderate sacred book? No, I mean, you can't change a scripture. I mean, there are so many scriptures in the world and all of them have things that you don't like and, and which do, are not compatible with modern uh, sensibilities. You cannot change them, but what you can do, and as far as Quran is concerned, my view has been uh, for decades now that we should tell our people that these are contextual verses 
and in any war when there is a war we do not know today exactly how this war happened uh, you see even in recent events we are some we sometimes disagree with how how things happened what happened so on you know and so if something happened in a desert village 1400 years ago in saudi arabia at that time we do not exactly know how things happened why things developed the way they developed why god felt constrained to give the kind of orders he did but these were war time instructions and in any war this is common sense anybody would understand this should understand this that in any war order is given to kill the people okay if if there is a war war is meant to kill i mean what do you do in a war you kill people you fight with them you defend yourself you try to protect yourself and you kill in that process etc so these orders are given in every war there will be even in future wars there will be orders given to the military to kill people but then the moment that war is over those instructions lose their value and applicability how can instructions given 1300 years ago in a war that took place in a village in a desert uh you know be applicable to us today what is the point of that and how can what kind of sense does that make so while we cannot uh, remove verses from quran uh we don't do, can't do that from any scriptures and there are many scriptures and all of them contain things that are you know not acceptable to us today but what we can say and and which is the truth also that these verses are no longer applicable to us muslims today this is something which every muslim should understand this is what this is the message which with we should go to the muslims common masses the ulama i am very very disappointed with i have been dealing with them i have arguing with them for decades now and i'm very disappointed that these people are simply not able to understand even common sense you can't talk with they said oh this is in the quran and they say quran is uncreated which means it is like god it is an aspect of god so you just cannot discuss quran and this again is absurd because quran is not a book which fell down from heaven one fine morning it is a collection of verses instructions that came to the prophet from time to time for over two decades you know and in bits and pieces and they were basically advising the prophet as to how to tackle a certain situation that had arisen that situation no longer exists there is a whole uh, uh, in in islamic theological training you go through a, an a studying of shane nuzul which means the context which means how and why this verse came how the, at what time did this verse came what was happening at the time when this verse was revealed so now what is the point of understanding and studying shane nuzul if you don't also say that since that context no longer remains these verses are no longer applicable this should be the logical uh, you know conclusion from there thank you yes your point early on about the the scriptures being up to interpretation but history being undeniable was was fascinating uh jeffrey norwitz follows up on that the quran is perfect and eternal isn't challenging the historic accuracy of the quran apostate 
No, historic accuracy of the Quran. I mean, there are questions about how it was collected. It was collected uh, 10, 12 years after the demise of the Prophet in the form in which it exists now. And there are there have been some questions about there have been found some uh, pieces of Quran which seem to differ a little bit in uh, you know in grammatical uh, etc. Uh, from the Quran that is considered the authentic one today by all Muslims, uh, they do not change the meaning, and it seems that uh, there is not much difference of opinion on this. Uh, except that some people will anything that happened 1400 years ago in a, in a very uncertain situation will be questioned and can be questioned and people have questioned that uh, but the thing is that the Muslims had even memorized this right uh, there and then when the uh, verses were revealed it was written down as well as memorized by many people and so many people would not have allowed Hadrat Usman the third caliph to give a very different Quran. However, in Islamic theology itself, in the Islamic literature itself, you find uh, some uh, uh, <clears throat> narrations which say that some verses of Quran have disappeared. About one surah, it is said it was as big as Surah Baqarah. Now it is half of it, etc. So there are these questions that have arisen. Muslims have themselves written these down very honestly, all these questions that have come. And they are there, and they are even taught in the madrasas. Uh, there are several books that are taught which talk about these things, and they are there. But by and large, uh, there is no question about, uh, or there is not much question about the authenticity of Quranic verses. Thank you. And in our last minute here, can you just tell our viewers a little more about your website? Well, uh, uh, my website, I started it in 2008. And what we try and do is to refute the arguments made in jihadi websites point by point. And when we started doing that, I mean, of course, there are all sorts of articles and statements and, and things. Uh, but this is one of the things that we do. And when we started doing that, our site was banned in Pakistan. Unfortunately, Pakistan claims to be fighting extremism itself. I mean, this is the government's official version. But what had happened was that there was a magazine called Nawai Afghan Jihad, published by the Taliban, Taliban and printed and published and distributed free of charge to Pakistanis. And it was also available on the website. It published a whole series of articles justifying killings of civilians, according to Islamic theology. So we picked that up and we started refuting every point they were making, point by point. And this didn't suit some people. And the Paisani government first banned the Urdu articles, then they, then they banned the English ones, then they banned the whole section, and then they banned the whole website. Even today, you can't read our website in Pakistan. So, uh, but anyway, we, we are also a multilingual website. We published, uh, we translate our articles in Urdu and Hindi and Malayalam, which are areas where there is uh, there is a great deal of uh, radicalization in India. We also have articles in Assamese and Tamil and you know uh, Kannada, etc. But few we don't have have not been able to find the right translators yet for those languages. 
but we are trying to, to reach as many people as we can through these. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And for our viewers, that's newageislam.com. And thank you so much. Unfortunately, yeah. we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you, Mr. Shaheen, for joining us today. Thank you very much. And I would like to appeal to you all to visit my website and contribute to it uh, in, the, in terms of articles as well as comments. We debate issues. There are hundreds, uh, thousands of, uh, of comments on every article uh, sometimes. Uh, so I would like your viewers also to contribute to the comments and articles section. Thank you very much indeed. Wonderful. Thank you. For our viewers, please join us Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for an update with Ashley Perry. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.